and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Health. Today, what it is, it's an interactive skin. I kind of like to compare it to almost like the hairs on the back of a cat standing up or scales kind of curling up. A wearable device that monitors and detects your stress levels and getting primary healthcare and community organisations to tackle chronic disease in Indigenous communities head on. That's today on Think Health. husband was very much a man's man. He was quite fit, very much into natural health, very anti-drugs of any sort. Um, we both are, were. A very loving person, very connected with people, just a, a very nice person. This is Imelda. Imelda's husband passed away six months ago after a long battle with dementia. How long was he living with dementia? Um, Well, he was actually diagnosed in the February when he was 64. By the August when he was 65, his dementia was so advanced that he needed to go into um, permanent residential care. And he was in care for three years and two months, and during that time you could constantly observe the dementia was um, becoming more and more advanced. Um, He gradually seemed to become detached from his environment so that I could walk in the room and be right in front of him and he wouldn't acknowledge that I was there. Uh, Let me think, it was the 19th of October when he developed aspiration pneumonia. Aspiration pneumonia is a lung infection that develops after you inhale food or liquids into your lungs. And for Imelda's husband, this developed because he started to have problems with his swallowing. And he died on the 26th of October. I had seen him at lunchtime, couldn't feed him. And he he seemed fine, but he just didn't seem settled. When I was with him at the lunchtime, I actually said to him, if this is all too hard, it's okay that, you know, you don't, you don't have to struggle anymore. Anyway, 7 o'clock that night I had a call from a doctor and she said, your husband has aspiration pneumonia. His advanced care plan says no intravenous antibiotics, no tubes of any sort. Um, and I said, yes, that's correct, that's what he wants. She said... We just need to make sure that that's what, you know, that you agree that that is the way you go. So at that point I asked her, what does that mean if he doesn't have the intravenous antibiotics? And she said, well, it could be days or it could be a couple of weeks. Choosing not to have intravenous antibiotics was something both Imelda and her husband had decided upon when developing his palliative care plan. 
meaning the plan in place for his end-of-life care. The whole point was we had made that decision about six years earlier and we had talked to our family about six years earlier. The fact that we already had the palliative care plan in motion meant that when he actually became permanently bedridden at the end of August, the conversations I had had with the Director of Nursing over that time meant that she was aware exactly of what I had said, that I knew that when the time came for end-of-life procedures, for me it was incredibly important that I had everyone on side, including the family. Obviously, I wasn't looking forward to the end-of-life process, but it took a bit of the the fear of the unknown away in the sense that I knew that I would be able to make decisions and to make requests that would be acceded to because of the staff knowing where I was coming from. Developing a palliative care plan offers both the patient and family a greater sense of control or being involved in what happens when someone is nearing end of life. Typically, a palliative care plan would begin as a conversation with, say, someone's GP, a cardiologist, or even an oncologist for cancer, who would talk about what care the patient would need, how the family can be involved, the team providing the care, and where exactly all of this would be happening. The majority of expected deaths occur in hospital. However, according to Claudia Verdon from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, optimal end-of-life care is not yet fully realised. I think medicine from the beginning has, has always sought to cure and, and to alleviate the issue that the person is dealing with. And I think still we, you know, we, we want that as consumers as well. If I think about myself, if I go to a GP with a problem, I want it fixed. I don't really want them to tell me, oh, actually, we will want you to live with this now for the rest of your life. But we have to deal with the reality as well, and there are many illnesses that at present we can't cure, and people do live with them for many years, and then they people do die from them. And we need to think about how do we best care for that whole experience of living with that illness. I think the main message too I would like to give around palliative care is that it's not about dying, it's about how to live with this illness as well as you can. And then there's a small period at the end of the person's care which is when they are actively dying. But actually the majority of the work we do is with people who are living and working out how to help them live as well as they can. What are the things that you see families and also patients really wanting the most by developing this plan and receiving palliative care? A huge thing that came through was really the need for honest communication and for that communication to come in a compassionate way, uh, for our care to be really respectful, to be uh, individualised to their unique needs. I think sometimes in the hospital setting, we tend to take over the care for that person and the family can feel quite uh, ostracised, actually. And families in the, in the study that we've been doing and, and the patients really talk about the therapeutic requirement of family being valued, being involved and being supported to be involved as much as they can be. And in what capacity does that kind of allow them to be involved in that way? I think, again, it will be individual. So some family members 
may be able to be at the hospital for many hours of a day and others won't, depending on personal circumstances. But some family members talked about wanting to be involved in the physical care of the person, helping to keep them clean, helping to turn them, helping to feed them, etc. Um, other family members wanted to be specifically involved in, in decision-making about the person's care and planning for the person's care. Other family members wanted to be able to support that patient in terms of meeting some of their goals, whether it might be that the patient wanted to get out of hospital and go to the beach for the last time or have a particular party or something like that. So the family members would really mobilise all of the efforts to get that to happen. The message from patients is they really do want to maintain their sense of self-identity. They want to still be the person that they are. And that also speaks to the, the need for unique care delivery, unique care planning. I guess that might also become complicated, though, when a patient might be experiencing something like dementia mm -hmm. and they have a plan that maybe their family has done on behalf of them or they've been involved in developing that care plan too. Yeah. But how do illnesses like dementia potentially complicate that? Caring for people with dementia can be complex in that way but I think at the same time those families and patients who have actually articulated what is important to them prior to the loss of their cognition you do then still work very hard as a nursing team and a multidisciplinary team to try and provide aspects of care that still link with what was of unique importance for that person. So an example might be I remember caring for a lady who did note that it was very important for her that she always had lipstick on and that she had had her hair done in curlers once a week. She was in a nursing home. Her care needs were 24-7. She really was very sick and, and very much at the end of her life, probably in the last few weeks of her life. But still every week the nurses, someone would make sure that they went in and put curlers in her hair and remove them so her hair still maintained the shape that was of importance to her and lipstick was constantly provided. And although that sounds like a superficial thing for her, it was really about dignity and it, it made a big difference to her to know that physically her appearance would remain what she felt as being important. And another example is I remember a lady who sort of said, you know, for her, a nightly gin and tonic was a real comfort. She got to the point where swallowing was really difficult for her. But in fact, we were able to spray a tiny bit of gin and tonic through a perfume bottle, like a perfume container, obviously with no perfume in it, but it had gin and tonic. And so she still had that taste still coming into her mouth every night. And just those small comforts actually can make a difference. In the recent federal budget, $8.3 million will go towards home-based palliative care services. However, this support is budgeted to end in 2019-2020. And although Claudia welcomes this funding, she also argues we need more attention focused on providing palliative care in hospitals and group homes. In the aged care setting recently, there's been a, a bill that's gone to Parliament to try and ensure that there will at least be one registered nurse on site at all times, and that's not been at this point endorsed, and that's crazy. We have to have registered nurses within an aged care environment. They're caring for people who are probably the sickest and most vulnerable in our society. So to not have registered nursing staff in that environment is is inexplicable and absolutely terrible. And we need to look at better frameworks of care and better funding models for those people so that the patients with dementia, the patients with very um, extensive issues with heart failure or, or respiratory diseases really get the care that they, they deserve. And it's these changes that would make a massive difference for people like Imelda and her husband. 
My husband and I were deeply in love. We'd been married almost 46 years. I wanted to make sure that his step from this world into the next world was as incredibly sad as it was, was would also be as wonderful, if you want to use that word, as it could possibly be. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Chronic diseases such as heart disease, stroke and diabetes are the greatest contributor to the health gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And all these diseases are preventable. A research project led by Nikki Percival at the University of Technology, Sydney, is working to bridge the divide between primary health care and community health organisations, who, particularly in regional communities, often work exclusively from one another. Prevention of chronic disease or preventive health care in particular is delivered in different aspects of the healthcare system. And I guess my research, what I'm really keen to be doing is looking at how do we coordinate and how do we actually join up that working with different aspects of the health system to then deliver better chronic disease programs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And when you're referring to different aspects of the health system, what exactly are you talking about? So the emphasis of my research is, is in the Indigenous primary health care sector. And working with them over the last 10 years or more, I've noticed that those organisations want to work in their communities and join up the programs that are happening in their communities to then coordinate um, the delivery of care. So the kind of organisations in the community, people might be aware of things like the National Heart Foundation walking programs, government-funded quitline services. There's lots of initiatives that primary health care services themselves do in the community where they increase people's awareness about good food and skills in cooking, smoking programs. There's things that go on in the community that would be great to have them more coordinated so that um, we improve chronic disease in Aboriginal and And I guess to insert your research, you're looking at bridging the gap between these primary healthcare facilities and these community organisations. Why might they not be communicating with one another? Why is there that divide at the moment? Mm. Well, I guess one of the major reasons is just the acute care nature and the burden of disease with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. People come in and they're, they're unwell and it makes it very challenging for primary healthcare providers to actually think about prevention when the burden of disease is so great. 
So workforce and, and capacity is, is a big issue. In many Indigenous primary health care services, for example, there's a high staff turnover. So being able to get a coordinated you know, understanding of what's going on becomes quite difficult as well. Funding models are another one. Barriers, just not, just not knowing what's in the community, what's out there. So there's a range of things that are actually stopping services and the providers actually working out in the community. To go to some of the results that you've found there, what is the benefit of having a cohesive system in terms mm. of primary health care working alongside these organisations? Mm. Like, What sort of benefits do you see coming yeah. from that? Two services had a look at their data and one of the things that they found was diabetes was, a, was obviously a big issue, but particularly management of part of the condition called HbA1c, which is sugar levels in the blood. So one service decided to run a diabetes education day, which ran every one day for every week, and they would provide education sessions around what is diabetes, why it's important about uh, monitoring your HbA1c levels, cooking skills, all sorts of things. So it created a social network where those clients would come together at the health service and provide this education program. Whereas another service actually thought that they would go out to their community and it was in a a more remote setting. So they went out and they did storyboard telling underneath a tree with local community members, talk about where sugar comes from, why it's important to go back to the clinic and have your HbA1c levels monitored. So what that does is that it raises their issue around what is this HbA1c? It's sugar in your blood. Where do you get sugar from? How do you actually decrease the amount of sugar that you take in? Go back to your clinic, have it tested so that you can either prevent the onset of diabetes or manage diabetes. I guess that raises an interesting point because to tackle, I guess, this divide and and try and resolve this problem here, it's also insert the community in which you are targeting and a practice that might work for them to want to either go to a service or go to a clinic. Mm. So we work a lot on the supply side in terms of making sure that the, the health system has the resources and has the staffing and we have that, but it's also the demand side from the community and saying increasing their awareness about what's important and, and why they should be going to the, to the clinic or to be engaging in programs that will increase their awareness or increase their skills. And also in terms of the context, because we know that not all systems or all communities have the same you know, one size doesn't fit all. They're all very different. So they have to be locally needs and, you know, meet the aspiration of those community needs. So the delivery of services meets what they want. If they don't have a system that's working for that community, do you see that people aren't even going to the clinic or an organisation? Mm. Are they are they just not seeking any help? Yeah, I mean, I think there are pockets like that for sure. I mean, I don't think that's that's just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think that it's more more broadly we tend to go to our to our clinic or our doctor when we're unwell rather than when we're well. That's just the nature of the system at the moment. One of the things that we we do know. More Aboriginal people employed in a health service, the more culturally appropriate, the more likely that an Aboriginal person feels more comfortable going to an Aboriginal service and they provide care to an Aboriginal person in the right way. So one way in terms of doing that is increasing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workforce involvement and employment in the sector. Do you see this research as kind of a baseline to usher in these changes somewhere down the line or I guess push political action to 
put funding into perhaps these employment programs or health services? How do you how do you see this research making an imprint? Mm, so I guess I guess what I hope to have by the end of this research is a, a range of evidence informed linkage interventions, the way that we can work out in the community provide an explanation of how health services have implemented these linkage interventions, what factors have driven their success, um, and then be able to provide um, some information back to policymakers and decision makers around you know, what's required to support this to happen more broadly. How mm. confident are you that they might pick up on this information? Well, I think oh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that the whole idea of people working together is intuitively attractive. I mean, everybody, we want to be able to make mess, better use of our prevention budget. And I, you know, we don't have a lot of prevention budget, so we do have to make sure that it works. The thing about the linkage or the intervention work is that we know that there is pockets of it happening. But we need to be able to say, well, how do we scale that up? How do we roll it out more broadly? And I think that um, there's an appetite for how do we actually get better at coordinating what we're doing, but it needs to be evidence and informed. My research in in terms of being able to facilitate that on the ground, so I'm very much a hands-on researcher and we're on the ground doing these changes and at the same time engaging policymakers and decision-makers in that process as well. So management of clinic services and other organisations will be involved in the process so that they can come along with the ride and see things happen over time. Nikki Percival, Senior Lecturer in Public Health in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. When you're stressed, whether that be from work, family troubles or a busy schedule, we often shake that stress off as natural and try to get over it. But shrugging off your experience of stress can lead to further health complications, including high blood pressure, heart disease, and stroke. However, product design honours student from the University of Technology, Sydney, Caroline Vasta, is trying to identify stress early and has designed SkinSense, a wearable stress detector for your wrist. And it's the identification of stress, Caroline says, that can be harder than you might think. Caroline spoke to Think Health's Leah Samaglu. What it is, it's an interactive skin. I kind of like to compare it to almost like the hairs on the back of a cat standing up or scales kind of curling up that uses multiple sensors on the body to detect when its user is stressed. And when those heightened stress levels are detected, the skin kind of changes form. So it starts out as a, a nice flat skin. And as you start to get stressed, yeah, so those hairs on the back of the cat or the scales kind of start to curl upwards and stand upwards, which invites the user to then want to kind of pat them back to being smooth. And that patting repetitive motion helps bring calm to the user. It helps calm them down in something that's called the relaxation response. Why did you want to tackle stress? Was it being a student? Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of things that kind of ties into it. I think just going into honours itself, uh, it's probably the most prevalent emotion that you feel. At the same time, I do come from a family in a background of psychology and mental health, um, working in those areas. So it was always a subject that was very openly talked about in the environment that I grew up in, but I noticed in kind of society it wasn't exactly something that was spoken about or readily accepted. So yeah, I wanted to kind of solve a problem not only with stress itself, but kind of create this beautiful skin or wearable device that could almost kind of change the stigma around stress as well. Uh, What did you notice in your research about why people get stressed or 
how people get stressed and how they can alleviate it. I guess the one common thing that I did find is that the biggest problem is people generally can't identify the first signs of stress. So it's one of those things where it almost becomes like an everyday feeling to us. So we just kind of brush it off and then it builds and builds and builds till, you know, you have a panic attack or an anxiety attack or, you know, there are even more consequences when it comes to like blood pressure and your heart and things like that. And as a designer, what were some of the things that you had to consider when coming up with implementing this design into a product? It was really difficult to kind of pick one direction to take because there's so many that you can take. But I did look into the big trends in design at the moment and what product trend would be most accepted if it could potentially turn into a product. And um, the wearables technology is a really big trend at the moment with, like you said, Fitbits. It's all taking off. And the really interesting thing about wearable technology that I did find in my research was we have such a connection to technology these days. Like it's, it's almost an extension of ourselves. We do have this really strong emotional attachment to our technology. So I thought it would be perfect to kind of tie in that intrinsic relationship that we already have with technology with something that could affect those emotions. What sort of research into stress and the human body did you have to um, undertake to create this prototype? To detect the stress was probably the biggest um, step that I had to take in my research to kind of understand how you can detect stress because obviously it's different in every person. The way that I looked at it was through particular sensors on the body and the two that I found that if you use them in conjunction with each other, they can detect stress levels is the galvanic skin response and the respiratory rate in a user. Could you expand on what is it, the gal... Galvanic skin response and uh, heart rate. So your galvanic skin response is essentially your skin's conductance. So that sensor can detect the arousal levels in a user. So, you know, whether you're excited or calm. And then the respiratory rate and the heart rate can detect uh, the valence. So whether that's a good or bad response. So if it's, say, excited and good, then, you know, that's that's a happy excited. But if it's excited and bad, that's more your stressed, excited state. And how did the skin sense, I guess, on a technical level with the copper, was it copper wires? Yeah, attached? so that was a, how does it work? That was another really interesting part is I was using a material called Pyrolux, which had only actually been, uh, I guess, invented in the end of 2015. So it was really wow. experimental material that I was working with. That is what the actual wearable skin was made out of essentially a few layers all with different thermal expansion rates so they curl um, when they get heated and you can completely customize the way you want it to curl and bend by manipulating those copper traces yeah that's fascinating but also that calming padding the actual skin sense that that calms you how did you find that in your research where did you find that yeah so it was really I guess one of the, the really positive things that I got out of last year was that I wasn't just researching design I got to research into the area of kind of psychology and stress which is again another really fascinating field so getting to tie them together was really interesting to me and uh, yeah I found the relaxation response which is the repetitive motion of smoothing something down Mm. which is again linked to a a lot of literature in petting animals a lot of people as a therapeutic technique pet animals and that repetitive motion kind of curbs the stress levels because it, it, it changes the focus of something and you're now focusing on something else in a repetitive matter so that repetitive manner kind of extends the period of time that you're you're distracted essentially so you get to, to spend some time calming down. Where do you see the potential for the skin sense? Like I guess commercially could elements of it like be expanded into almost like a Fitbit type of band that's yeah. already on the market? The reason that I, I focus my honours 
solely on the interactive skin itself. I didn't actually embed it into any device is because it does have so much potential to be put into so many different products. Like you can definitely put it on your wrist, you can put it on a wristband and then it's, you know, a bit of a jewellery piece, a bit of a statement and it's, again, so easily interacted with. It can be something that, you know, you could maybe put on the back of your jacket so people around you know that you're stressed. There's just so many different routes that people can take it. So there's definitely potential for it to be put into a product, but I don't think I'd be able to narrow it down to one. (laughs) Caroline Vaster, product design honours student from the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking to Liat Samaglou. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you liked the show, make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health. We're also available on iTunes. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company. Listener.